Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 91. Today's guest is Ben Schneiderman, Emeritus Distinguished University Professor in the Department of Computer Science, Founding Director of the Human Computer Interaction Laboratory, and a member of the Institute for Advanced Computer Studies, all at the University of Maryland. He is a legend in the field of human-computer interface design and has received six honorary doctorates in recognition of that. He is the lead author of Designing the User Interface, Strategies for Effective Human-Computer Interaction, a book I used as my own definitive reference to the topic when I was writing that kind of software. His new book, Human-Centered AI, was published by Oxford University Press in February 2022, and there's a link to it in the show notes and transcript. What is human-centered AI? Let's find out that and a lot more as we get into the interview. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Peter. So you've got a new book coming out about human-centered AI, and that provokes a lot of questions in me. That acronym, HCAI, is the name of a center at Stanford, so I'll want to get into whatever the connections there might be there. And also, you're an expert in anything, the expert on user interface and human-centered computer design. So I want to know how that informs your perspective on human-centered AI, and maybe you can start by defining that for us. Wow, there's a lot of questions in that one. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. I'm happy to join you and talk about human-centered AI. It is the title of my book, which is out and published, and I'm pleased to report it's jumped up to Amazon's number 33 of the top AI books. So that's pretty good for a starter for the first week, and it's gotten a nice review that called it among the most important books on AI in the last few years. So I'm off to a good start, and I thank you for the chance to talk about the book and, more importantly, the topic. And what I'm talking about is human-centered AI. And what do we mean by that? Well, for me, it's a set of processes and a set of products that are shaped around the needs of people. And the goal is always to put people first and to amplify, augment, enhance, and empower people. That's what we want to do. We want to build their self-efficacy, support their creativity, clarify their responsibility, support sustainability, and make social connectedness what it should be for people. People want to be together. They want to be connected to other people. So it's a different view of the world than is customarily provided in the AI world. And so it offers a fresh way of thinking. The processes are taken from uh, HCI, Human Computer Interaction. Um, as you noted, my book, uh, Designing the User Interface, is in sixth edition and has been the sort of the central book for this field, or one of the central books at least. And the adaptation of the methods of 
user experience design, usability testing, prototype development, and the guidelines for user interfaces is what the movement is all about. So you want to develop these techniques and make them appropriate for machine learning and deep learning methods that are part of AI and the other strategies that become central. AI advances have been terrific in the last decade. And the goal here is to take that science foundation, turn it into an engineering and design discipline on which we can build successful commercial products and services, and those that are going to be reliable, safe, and trustworthy. So you've got a lot of my mantras out there, and that's a start. Let me take a breath and see what you have to say. Well, that's big. I mean, what you're talking about there is covering many disciplines that a lot of people inhabit one corner of, like trustworthiness as an issue of AI. And I'm interested in what the overarching principle is here that might have stemmed from your user interface work. And if there's anyone out there that's familiar with user interface design and perhaps like me was engaged in struggling with that some decades ago when a lot of those visual user interfaces, graphical user interfaces were new, that phrase user interface design meant picking the right screen widget for a menu or the right font or keeping your colors consistent and not blinding the user and also thinking about blind users and things like that. You've gone far beyond that. So there's some kind of overarching principle here that I think I heard the threads of in what you were saying, but I wonder if you can distill it down for us. Well, I'm reluctant to say there is one overarching principle, but I think it was you know putting people first and amplifying, augmenting, enhancing, and empowering people. That's what we want to do. We want to think about how we can support people with what I call super tools, active appliances, telebots, and control centers. So we want to shift the language, the metaphors, the thinking away from a view which suggests that the machine is going to do it all and towards a view which says we are enabling people to be super to give them superpowers that they can carry out this work creatively. Maybe the best example is the cell phone camera in your pocket. It's a terrific device. It's brilliantly designed. It's got lots of AI. It does machine learning and deep learning to set the focus, the aperture, reduce hand jitter, and many, many other things. But at the same time, the user is in control. The user points the camera where they want to, they zoom in where they want to, and they click for their decisive moment. It's their photo. They took the photo, and they're proud of their creative moment. So that reminds me that you drew a distinction between digital cameras and Roombas in your writing, where you drew the distinction between rationalism and empiricism. And I want you to explain that in that you were describing your experience with your Roomba and how it mapped out the room. And we actually got one for Christmas. So we were going through very similar experience with what it can do. But you contrasted the way that humans interact with or that device is designed for human interaction with the digital camera using those words rationalism and empiricism. I wonder if you could go into that. Thank you, Peter, for, for going deep into it. Yes, I do lay some philosophical foundations based on the 2,000-year-old debate between 
the rationalists who believed that rational thinking was sufficient to understand the world, that you could just think clearly about what was happening and make a design which was good and perfect and good forever. And the empiricists, like Leonardo, were into experiencing the real world, to seeing what does really happen, how things go wrong, and how things change over time. And it's that different contrast, you know, the rational versus the experiential or exploration approach, discovery, and seeing how things work in the real world that I lay the foundations on. So both of them are valuable. You know, they both can really help you get to new places. And I was trained in a rationalist scientific methods and thinking mathematically as a computer scientist and logic and so on. So I believe in rational methods, but I came to understand that there was a limitation to what they could do and that a stronger case could be built by taking rational methods and then adding to them with empirical methods that support exploration, that study real users in the real world, that look at problems as they really are, not as we wish they were. So the contrast you suggest is there, and that Roomba, I think, emerged more from the rationalist model, which said, we can make a machine that will clean your apartment and we'll do it. I have a Roomba. We bought a Roomba. We still are users of it. And it goes about doing its thing. But I don't know how it works. I don't know where it's going to go next. I don't know which room it's going to go to. It it doesn't really engage in a way that allows me to have a sense that I'm arranging for the cleaning of the room. It's gotten better over the years. And the addition of the iPhone app to control it gives a little more information, provides a map, for example, uh, when it's done but not along the way. So I want to know where it's going next. I want to know how long it's going to take. When is it going to get to my office so that I can clear out and go do something else? Okay, so those would be the things I'd want to know, and that come from talking to real users. And that's where the empirical approach complements, extends the rational approach. Does that give you an idea? I think so. I'm, I was looking for the distinction between rational and we think of the counterpart as being irrational, right? Which is not what you want to describe empiricism as. It sounds like human focus and acknowledging that, is it about acknowledging that you have different types of users? I mean, I think of the rational ones as being, we're building this for software developers, people like who think like us. And empiricism is not everyone thinks the way you do. Let's find out. Is that a good comment? That's part of it, yes. I mean, there are many definitions of rationalism and empiricism, so it can get complicated. I tried to keep it simple in my description, but you're right that the rationalist approach makes an assumption that through logical thinking, you can design an algorithm that will work. It'll work for everybody. It'll work everywhere, and it'll work forever. Mm. However, (laughs) you and I have come to understand that there's a wide range of people, that people have different needs and different expectations, and that things change over time. And that's why, you know, we have famous stories of, oh, 10 years ago, Google flu trends. Google attempted to predict the outbreaks of flu based on search queries that users submitted. And it worked great. And they got a lot of publicity. But then it didn't work. And there's a terrific story about why it didn't work, because 
It's not that the algorithm went bad. It's just that users changed the way the search changed. The search algorithm itself had hundreds of modifications to it, and it no longer worked. And we know this story is a common one in the movement of AI systems from research to application. And so a group of courageous Google engineers a couple of years ago wrote a paper, well, 40 of them wrote a paper called Underspecification. It's a funny phrase, but Underspecification, by which they described seven serious projects that went from working in the lab, working in the prototype, but failing in the real world. And we've seen recently, we have the failure of IBM Watson, which was a huge investment of billions of dollars. And that project came to its major contracts with the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas and the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Both ended in business failures. And ultimately, it led to the downfall of IBM's Watson. IBM's Watson was an admirable piece of technology. There was a lot of strong things in it, but IBM kept trying to get both ways. They were proposing it as a tool to help physicians to be better, but in another moment they said, it's a cognitive computing capability that will solve problems. It will read scientific papers and it will provide answers that are better than doctors. So as soon as you introduce that, you're in trouble. So the reality is we need to do better if we're going to make the algorithmic breakthroughs of AI to be widely beneficial and to have reliable, safe, and trustworthy systems. And you said something a little while ago that's got me excited. You mentioned metaphors. As a software developer, metaphors are really important in user interfaces. We rely on them unconsciously. The menu even have this physical world metaphors for the different types of widget on a a user interface that you click and you pull down. There's no such thing going on as pulling down, but it just looks like that. And all kinds of other things that are grounded in concrete things within our experience. And the user interface is by using those metaphors, make it easy for us to intuit what they're going to do. And then when they become widespread and and uniform, we all intuitively look for, oh, the X is going to close the window or things like that. Now, are there metaphors emerging or that you would like to see that are as applicable to the interface between humans and artificial intelligence? Yes, yes, I think that's right. I think you were suggesting the metaphors like the desktop metaphor, the trash can. All of those things are concepts people are familiar with. And so the idea of files and documents and folders, all those things were designed and chosen to make them familiar to users. And you're right, a second point of a central feature of good design was consistency across different applications. So even the basic things, I was a consultant for Microsoft at certain points, and Microsoft Windows 95, okay, going back a while, did not have consistent, its dialog boxes had okay and cancel in different positions. They were different shapes, different colors, and so on. And so one of the standard things was to make them consistent, okay, and cancel, same shape, same size, same position. And it turns out, you know, my students have done studies and, 
every time you violate that consistency, it slows users down by five or 10%. Whereas violations of terminology, if instead of cancel, you say obliterate, that'll slow them down 25%. And just the consistency in all those things you mentioned, color, position, shape, et cetera, are really important. Now, when we move towards AI, we're going to keep the consistency of the interface widgets, but the issues that are most prominent are how we think about the AI and our relationship to it. And so the old language of intelligent agents, of teammates or collaborators or partners, so on, the idea of autonomous machines and of social robots, these have been the dominant metaphors we've heard about AI. And these are what can I say? They're compelling ideas. They sound cool. And the idea of a social robot that cares for you or does what you want sounds cool. But the reality is these have not worked out. The robots, the social robots, Jibo, Kuri, Anki, Cosmo have all gone. Well-funded commercial ventures with initial buyers, Pepper even, so, so well supported by SoftBank and so on. These are fading away. Oh, the idea will remain. It will keep emerging and bubbling up. But I hope we've passed this early stage of these cliches and we can move on to getting things right, like your cell phone camera, like your GPS navigation. The navigation device on your phone or in your car gives you a great deal of AI and machine learning to choose routes and show highway conditions and traffic and gives you a set of choices. And then you get a preview and you select which of the routes you want. It's your trip and then you follow along. And if you want, you can steer off the route. You can go a different one and it will recalculate and find you another route. So these I would call in the class of super tools, that's my phrase, that empower you, that give you superpowers. I find it remarkable to have a navigation device that really takes me quite smoothly to destinations I've never been to. And the old idea of unfolding paper maps and marking them up and stopping every 20 minutes to reconsult them is gone because we have this really terrific technology. That's quite remarkable. So super tools are a class of things that support people, that let them get what they want done give them a sense of control, don't restrict them, but give them options that they know what to do with. And the metaphors on your GPS navigation, there's a metaphor that says car or driving or walking or biking or public transportation. Those icons become familiar. And then you have markers for gas stations, for restaurants, cafes, etc. And you begin to understand how that works out. And so that familiarity adds to the fluency you have in using this tool. It's your tool. So that's one class. The second are what I call telebots, which are generally remotely operated, steerable instruments that work at a distance, or they could be close by, but let's say work inside the human body. So telebots for doing surgery that give physicians greater control and hard to access parts of the body, and they can move in, make very precise movements, and do things that were impossible to do with just scalpel, or would have been much more difficult to do. And so telebots, also you know, remotely controlled drones and 
other kind of devices that work at a distance are another class of tools that we want to build. They include prosthetic devices that they let your legs support you in a way that would have been difficult otherwise. And they include the class of perceptual and motor amplification devices. The third category is what I call active appliances. These are consumer-oriented for wide use to low cost. And it's your digital thermostat, your Google Nest device, or your baby monitoring device, or Every coffee maker, fridge, washing machine is getting AI algorithms put into them, but still it's your pot of coffee and you're going to get what you want out of it. And we have really interesting ways in which the AI algorithms can improve the performance and save energy, make it safer, prevent disasters, limit fires on stoves and make sure your clothes don't get overly dry. You know, there's all kinds of small little ways. The last category is what I call control centers. And this is a counter to the idea of autonomous systems. And I think for a lot of devices, whether it's pacemakers or air traffic control or hospital control or industrial, that we want control centers to be acting in a supervisory way to ensure that the AI gets put to work in the best way. And sometimes we'll have control centers that will monitor a single place, like an industrial control center, but it could also be monitoring 10,000 pacemakers. And from the operation of each pacemaker, which used to be thought of as embedded autonomous inside your body, but now is connected by Bluetooth to your cell phone, the data is reported. Medtronic now can have the aggregate data to make better machine learning algorithms, which will provide a better pacemaker. So while the word autonomy sounds great at first, autonomous systems, there's a lot of ways in which you want to provide a certain kind of oversight through a control centers that give creative humans a chance to influence what happens. So those are the four metaphors I see. Super tools, telebots, active appliances, and control centers. Wow, I have got a lot of notes to process here. Let's see if I can go to those in some kind of order. You mentioned robots there, and also some of the terminology about AI that we interact with at certain levels. You were using words like partner that made me think about metaphors for AI that we interact with at, say, a fairly high level, like chatbots, and that we describe them in invariably anthropocentric terms. We make them human to a degree that they're not, but it's very hard to find words that don't carry the connotation but do convey what we want to say when we talk about understanding and meaning and things like that. Do you see the role of language having to change here? Is there a focus area for the language that we use in describing AI that can affect the way we think about it? Sure, absolutely. So you chose the example of voice user interfaces, Siri, Alexa, and so on. And those are really a different case. They don't fit the definitions of social robots as defined by that community. They're voice user interfaces. They're skillfully built. They're impressive. I use them and they get a job done. The voice recognition and the synthesis and the problem solving is really very impressive. And it's turned out that for a lot of people, 
the anthropomorphic and playful approach turned out to be a useful one for that case. But I don't think people see uh, um, Alexa or Siri as their partner. I think they see it as kind of tool, an interface by which they search the web or they get the weather or they play music or they set a timer or they get the weather. There's a bunch of things that people do, rather limited sphere. That's what they learn in that user interface, I think. And that's a separate category. But the idea of a teammate, again, a seductive notion, which is still widely popular, a collaborator, a partner, these are still lively ideas, but I suggest they're suboptimal. But when you think about a computer as a teammate, you're going to lean in the anthropomorphic direction that you did as you asked that question. And you're going to forget that that computers are really pretty amazing and special and they're very fast and they have huge storage and super sensitive sensors and powerful effectors. And so you want to make them different from people. You want to make them powerful and you want people to have a sense that they're in control because they are responsible for what happens. You know, if you're going to put a teammate and make it a, you know, that's a social robot, it better have a sign on it that says, if I screw up, you're responsible. (laughs) Okay? Robots and AI systems are not responsible agents. And that still is something that needs to soak in more deeply uh, for a lot of people working in this field. They gloss over that. But to me, that's a pretty important feature. Maybe more it becomes pretty clear when we talk about self-driving or what I like to call safe driving cars and who's responsible for when things go wrong. So how many deaths do you think there have been from Tesla cars on autopilot? Uh, And who's responsible? Who pays? And that's still an unknown question. There's a website called tesladeaths.com. TeslaDeaths.com, which is an open reporting system. Last time I looked, there were 230 deaths. You don't know how many of them were autopilot deaths, but the National Highway Transportation Safety Agency launched an investigation of 11 specific accidents where autopilot was engaged, but the Tesla crashed into emergency fire, police, and ambulance on the side of roads. And we need to know why that happens. Tesla tells us, hey, our cars are safer, autopilot is safer, but we don't really know. And the challenge for the insurance companies is, do they charge a higher premium for autopilot cars or a lower premium? I'm cheering for the lower premium because I want them to work. I want safer driving cars, but we're not there yet. And I think there's a strong realization that it's taking a lot longer than was expected or promised by some people in the field. So I just, I return back up to my issue that responsibility for failures is really important. I mean, failures for recommender systems for movies or restaurants is not a great concern for me. But when we're talking about life critical applications in medical care and transportation and military action, now we're talking about responsibility. And the military is strong about chain of control, responsibility for action, after action reviews. And they are coming to understand that you really want to have a system 
of control that works. And, you know, while AI algorithms may be tested to show 95, 98% accuracy, 99% accuracy, not good enough for life-critical applications. Mm. So we need to take these things seriously and discriminate between the lightweight recommenders, the middleweight consequential applications, and then the serious life-critical ones. That's the end of part one of the interview. This is another two-parter for download time and attention span. I've got to say that user interface design was something that wasn't included in my computer science degree program. And so I came to it some years after that and discovered this whole, what I'll call, soft field that focused on how humans understand the computer in front of them. It was both eye-opening and disturbing. It was disturbing because I'd not thought about it before and just assumed that if someone couldn't use a program I'd written, there was something wrong with them. And that wasn't an uncommon view among programmers at the time. And then here comes Ben with his work and his book, which was passed to me by my good colleague and HCI expert at JPL, Faith McCreary. And I found out this whole new science that I had to learn about. But the disturbing part of that was learning that I wasn't good at it, for about the same reason that I asked my wife and now my daughter to approve my clothing purchases it's just not in my wheelhouse. Since then, the positions of UI designer and user interface tester have become part of development teams and projects. And I'm happy that I can call on one of them and give them the problem and they come up with an answer I never would have. Well, so now we have AI being developed by, dare I say it, people some of whom doubtless have as little ability in the user interface area as myself. And there's a whole lot more issues of interaction with humans to consider when you've got an application that does high-level inferencing and interacts with a user on so many more levels than a window on a screen behind a keyboard and a mouse. So having people who know how to do this kind of thing, like Ben does, is critical in the safe deployment of increasingly advanced AI. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, LG, the people who made my washing machine, has an AI research arm that plans to spend more than $100 million over the next three years to create a general-purpose artificial neural network, which it calls Megascale AI. Research chief Bei Kyung-hoon said, quote, We will funnel all our resources in developing an AI which will beat top human experts. We will not make many AIs for specific areas, it will be a general-purpose AI, which will be better than human experts across the board. End quote. I'll note that LG now has a washing machine that touts an onboard AI, which is used for deciding what cycle to use and how much detergent. But this announcement sounds like they're aiming a bit higher. Pause a minute to wrap your head around the figure $100 million and what sort of commitment that represents. Next week... We'll conclude the interview with Ben Schneiderman when we'll talk about what sort of governance might improve the state of human centering of AI and the role of standards in human-computer interfaces. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. 
Thank you for listening. 